0: good morning everybody and welcome to another united states studies center webinar i'm simon jackman professor of political science and the chief executive officer of the united states Studies center which stands here at the university of sydney on the traditional lands of the gadigal people and i pay my respects to elders past present and emerging um thank you for joining us for another alliance at 70 themed webinar with our fabulous uh themed play on video there that we're we're rolling at the start of these Alliance at 70 themed uh, webinars. Um, Later this week, um, Defence Minister Dutton and Foreign Minister Maurice Payne uh, will complete a uh, a swing of two plus two meetings both through the region culminating in Washington DC for the the annual OSMIN ministerial consultations (laughs) um, where in the two plus two format of course, um, the Australian Defence and Foreign Minister uh, sit face to face, typically uh, uh, with their uh, opposite numbers in the US—the uh, Secretary of Defence and the uh, Secretary of State, respectively. Um, this year's meetings, after a lot of toing and froing about how and when they might take place uh, in the context of uh, COVID, were due to be here and held here in Australia um, after a lot of negotiation. Um, have been flipped back uh, for two years running to be hosted um, by the USA in Washington, D.C. And we'll get, perhaps we'll get into some of the whys and wherefores around that uh, detail of the meeting um, shortly. But what we wanted to do today was to draw on the fabulous expertise we have here at or affiliated with the United States Study Center to give this meeting a preview. It. it is, of course, the first two plus two OSMIN um, under the Biden administration. Um, uh, and we've had right, a change in the political complexion of the administration in the United States, pr- uh, quite obviously, while um, we've, the coalition government remains in office here in Australia. So we go from a coalition government talking to the Trump administration to a coalition government uh, talking to the Biden administration. The, the meetings are noteworthy in that respect. And of course, also coming on the back of the, the very symbolic and significant anniversaries of, of the last couple of weeks, the 70th anniversary of ANZUS, and of course the 20th anniversary uh, since 9/11, but the broader strategic context is, I think, the most important thing. Certainly, from the conversation we're about to have over the next 55 minutes, um, um, amid sharpening strategic competition with China and rising concerns um, about the direction of Biden's Indo-Pacific strategy, chief among um, the issues we'll be getting into in the in the in the minutes ahead. Um, Critically, both countries have long before under the Trump administration, this was the case and continues under the Biden administration. The US sort of talking um, about its commitment to uphold a stable, open, uh, prosperous Indo-Pacific. Um, um, Australia, I imagine, would like nothing better. Um, but of course, uh, will the rubber uh, hit the road? And and what indeed might emerge uh, from this Osman I that gives voice to that long held, shared strategic aspiration. Um, To to have a conversation about what we might expect to see from Osmin, both of that very high level and perhaps some more specific things, Uh, we're joined by um, uh, three of our experts here at the United States Study Center. Uh, And in in the order uh, that we'll get to um, on on the run sheet, um, we'll we'll start with some high-level framing remarks from Susanna Patton, who's a research fellow with us in the foreign policy and defense program. She joined us um, quite recently um, uh, from um, the Australian government. She was a senior analyst in the Southeast, Southeast Asia branch at ONI, the Office of National Assess- uh, Intelligence, it used to be ONA, pardon me, um, Australia's Peak Intelligent Assessment, and there's the A part, um, assessment agency. Um, we're delighted to have someone like Susanna um, come out of government and, and join us here at the center uh, Susanna previously served in the ASEAN Australia Special Summit Task Force in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and uh, had a posting as a diplomat in the Australian Embassy in Bangkok. Um, following Susanna, we'll flip to um, Ashley Townsend. Ash, of course, directs the foreign policy and defense program here at the US Study Center, covers uh, a, a wide array of topics, obviously relevant uh, to the topic at hand today, international security strategic affairs with a focus on the Indo-Pacific. Alliances, partnerships, maritime security, defence policy, US, Chinese, and Australian strategy—it keeps Ashley quite busy. Um, and then um, we'll be hearing from um, Stephen Kirchner, another program director here at the Centre. Stephen directs our international economy program. Uh, he also has an affiliation with the Fraser Institute in Canada, and and has worked broadly on on topics around. Um, uh, global trade and investment flows and of course within a, a critical sort of geostrategic overlay now uh, uh, critical to, to any consideration of those topics and that's certainly the case uh here at the united states studies center um, um so the way uh we've got today structured is to get some f- uh sorry i forgot jennifer jacket of course um, um our our um part me that's that's another, um, that's my bad. Sorry, uh, lost count there. Uh, uh, but, but Jennifer is a, a non-resident fellow here with us, uh, not physically here in Sydney at the study center, um, but she's currently on leave from the Australian government um, while pursuing a PhD uh, as a Sir Roland Wilson scholar at the National Security College at the ANU. And again, a little bit like Susanna, again, um, the ability um, for the Senate to draw an expertise of people either leaving government or still in government uh, is, is terrific. Um, Jennifer speaks in that capacity, uh, uh, still um, very much um, in the Australian government system. And so we're delighted that she's got uh, the capacity uh, to, to contribute to today's conversation. But Jen's expertise really covers emerging and um, advanced technologies. The implications of the development of those technologies for U.S. allies and partners, uh, um, Australia chief among them, and she's worked on a range of issues uh, spanning critical infrastructure, foreign interference, counterterrorism, international defence engagement, and defence capability development. and And Jennifer's joining us um, remotely uh, from from Canberra. I guess we're all remote uh, by by webinar today, but that's a um, a longer than anticipated introduction to give everybody a. a uh, a proper introduction and make sure I actually covered everybody. Again, my apologies about that. Um, but let's get into it. It's a full Osman agenda. Um, there's a lot to cover in a short amount of time. Our first tab off the rank, as it were, uh, Susanna, uh, the floor is yours for uh, some framing remarks from you. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much Simon. Um, So I might just add one point of context which I think is useful and then I'm going to discuss a little bit about what each Australia and the United States is looking to get out of the meeting. so, Osmin is always important, but I think for Australia, especially so in 2021, because Australia has had less face-to-face contact with the new US administration than other key allies and partners like Japan, India, South Korea. Um, the Prime Minister's scheduled bilateral meeting with the President at the G7 became a trilateral. So, apart from Uh, Senator Payne's visit to Washington in May, we haven't had as much face-to-face political contact at the top level on these foreign affairs and defence issues, so that makes Osmin 2021 particularly important for Australia. So what's on the table? There's always a lot on the table, so I'm just going to highlight briefly three priorities uh, for each side. Some of those are very much overlapping because Australia and the US see that they have shared interests. Uh, We're not talking about a zero-sum negotiation, but in some cases, differences of priorities or or emphasis. Um, So firstly, on the Australian side, um, what does Australia want? I think top thing for Australia is a strong US focus on the Indo-Pacific. Australia wants to see a delivery on the rebalance that was first Um, promised by the Obama administration 10 years ago, but which is yet to substantially materialize. I think concerns about US bandwidth and potential for distraction, um, as we've seen with recent events in Afghanistan, are perennial. As a recent report from my colleagues and I in the Foreign Policy and Defence Programme highlighted, um, a particular concern is that since the US withdrew from the TPP, we see no comprehensive US economic strategy for the region, uh, which we've argued is essential if it's to retain influence vis a vis China. On the Indo Pacific, It's no coincidence that our ministers are in Washington at the end of a trip to Indonesia, India, and South Korea. That's very much about positioning Australia as an active diplomatic player um, in the region. Two further priorities for the Australian side that my colleagues will speak to in detail are support on economic coercion that we're experiencing from China and access to the US defence industrial base, which has been flagged prominently by Defence Minister Peter Dutton. So what does the US want to get out of the meeting? A first priority, I think, is support for administration approaches to China. Um, The US conceptualizes competition with China as a global competition of systems between autocracies and democracies over norms especially on issues such as technology, cyber affairs, and infrastructure delivery. Um, These, of course, are all in Australia's interests as well. But as we argue in our report, they're not exactly the same thing as a strong focus on the Indo-Pacific per se. also, on China, the US will want to see the meeting underscore peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. This is something we've seen the US push for in its other international engagements. That's part of a broader administration effort to shore up deterrence against Beijing. Uh, second US interest will be in force posture announcements, which of course, Ashley will speak to in more detail. And a third priority for the US will be uh, climate change. Um, Climate change has received a lot of attention in the media coverage in the lead up to Osmin. It's very clear that domestically and internationally, the Biden administration is looking to pull every lever that it has to address climate change. The US has suffered a series of devastating natural disasters over the summer, which I think will only have sharpened US interest in this topic. US officials um, like Kurt Campbell, the White House Indo-Pacific coordinator, um, John Kerry as climate envoy, his his deputy, Jonathan Pershing, have been very explicit in their remarks, um, acknowledging the gap between where Australian policy is and where they would like it to be. Um, In my personal view, that's an unfortunate perception that Australia should be looking to change. the opposition on climate change, I think arguably makes us a less attractive partner and perhaps gives us less standing to push for our own asks that we would have of the US. Um, and moreover, a failure to address climate change within the alliance context also risks undermining public perceptions of the alliance, because we know that climate change is an important priority, especially for younger generations. That being said, as I think my comments made clear, climate change is not the only interest that the US has had uh, or will have in Osmin this year. So the idea that um, that Australia is risking its position as an alliance partner, if we don't pull our socks up on climate change, I think is is incorrect. Ultimately, the moral, economic, environmental imperatives in favor of us changing our position on climate change are gonna be more important than what happens specifically in the alliance context. Um, And with that, I'll, I'll throw it back to Simon.
0: I was muted. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Ash. Uh, floor's yours. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Simon, and uh, <clears throat> thanks, uh, Susanna, for those comments. You know, I'd certainly underscore the last one about the place of climate change um, in both alliance negotiations, but more broadly in Australia's uh, regional strategy. And and just add the footnote to that that increasingly, you know, this is an issue that affects all elements of of US, Australian, all countries, national power. And in the United States, the Pentagon as well is paying increased attention to the significance of climate change on US paper basing posture, operations, and industrial base globally. Um, the context point that I'd like to make for, for my remarks that will focus on munitions, Uh, Australia's push, that is, to acquire US support for the development of a munitions manufacturing capability here in Australia, as well as the ongoing debate and progress between Australia and the United States in building forward US military posture in the region. The context statement behind both of those things is that Osmin each year now is at some level about advancing a collective defence agenda in a more focused way than has been the case in the past. Um, in the last four years, it's, it's become clear that both countries publicly now um, agree um, and recognise that the United States um, uh, military preponderance in the Indo-Pacific is past, and that, in fact, we are now very much in a Plan B era where both countries are working together collectively alongside other committed regional security partners like Japan, India to a certain degree and growing degree, and ROK, Singapore, and the Philippines at times, uh, and others to advance a networking agenda that can in some way offset and, um, and complement the United States' Extended um, security guarantees to Asian countries going forward. Uh, But there are, of course, obstacles on both sides of the Pacific when it comes to advancing this agenda, which is in part what Osmin is about addressing. So, in the case of Australia's uh, ambitions to produce long range um, um, missiles in Australia, um, uh, which is really a a, a flow on work agenda from last year's 2020 2020 Defence Strategic Update, I think it's important to briefly articulate what Australia wants. Australia is looking to build or to be able to build a suite of different kinds of, of, of missiles here in Australia that will provide us with a degraded degree of sovereign resilience, at a greater degree of defense industrial self-reliance and greater latitude for independent and collective um, um, military strategy in the Indo-Pacific. Noting the continued rise in Chinese power and assertiveness in the region, it is the view of the Australian Department of Defense that long range fires and often attributable cheap long range systems will be increasingly important both for Australia, for our regional partners and for the United States, and it will help Australia do more for all of those actors. But why do we need the United States in this context? Well, we need US technical assistance and know-how in order to build out our own domestic ecosystem that could in time be integrated with the US supply chain, or the outset really, um, and interoperable with US systems. And to answer the obvious question, why can't Australia do it itself entirely? Uh, The answer is that there are just so many parts of of, um, the, the technology space that touch on US research and development or US industrial output, that at some level, we will require the permission of United States, due to US legislation, to use that component tree or that R&D in our systems one way or another. So getting US support for and input into our own domestic sovereign defense aspirations here is critical for the viability of the industry, for its alliance payoffs, and for the capacity for it to have a future, as the Australian government suggests that it will do in investing tens of billion dollars over the next 20 years. Um, uh, We we have a couple of different options and how this might play out at AusMoon this year, but I would wager um, that ultimately we're going to see incremental progress. Um, Australia could simply become involved um, more ambitiously in building components for long-range missiles. Uh, We could see the establishment of new um, sovereign or co-production initiatives that would see Australia produce either under licence or in partnership with the United States, different missile systems. Um, I think it's unlikely that we will see the gold standard US support for Australian Indigenous sovereign missile production um, in the short term. Part of the reasons for that, is that the United States, that there are, that the United States continues um, to present a number of obstacles to that kind of alliance empowerment. At the legislative level, the export controls like the international traffic and arms regulations pose problems for allies that want to build their own systems, um, including those with US support, but even those without US support. Um, The Buy American um, 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 uh, legislation that both the Trump and the Biden administrations have endorsed and expanded um, um, make it less and less likely that the Pentagon will have a high degree of latitude to work with allies like Australia in in a general sense in order to build advanced industrial um, defence capabilities. And I'll note that the markup of the NDAA, which is the uh, the annual authorization of US defence spending, has just last week flagged Bagged, um, a potential increase to 100% by American, that's unlikely, but you do have that political pushback on buying systems from allies alive and well in the United States. And finally, um, the broader political point about the corporate interests of US defence industry, uh, not wanting to see those outsourced. Um, there is a framework for fixing this. It is the National Technology and Industrial Base that was set up in 2017 to involve Australia. That is the piece of legislation or really enabling legislation that Defence Minister Peter Dutton has been loudly promoting here in australia prior to his trip but of course it takes two to tango and we haven't yet seen the progress on the u.s side to implementing the ntib with allies like australia britain or even canada which has been a part of it for about 20 years uh, quickly or effectively and that is because of those obstacles that i just outlined so we'll be looking for progress on that front but i do expect it to be incremental Just briefly here, because of time, I wanted to touch on forward military posture in the region as well. It's now been 10 years since the US and Australia set up their initial um, uh, force, uh, force posture initiative. Um, which in 2011 paved the way for the U.S. Rotational um, Force of Marines in Darwin, as well as a few years later, the Enhanced U.S.-Australia Air Cooperation Initiative, again in Northern Australia. Both sides recognise the need to take this to the next level. Um, One of the key issues on the table, or at least which ought to be on the table, is a broadening out of those force posture initiatives to include a maritime element, both in Northern Australia and in Western Australia. There are precedents for this Um, during the Iraq War. Australia and the Australian industrial base in Western Australia was directly involved in the refurbishment, replenishment and maintenance of US warships in uh, transiting through the Indian Ocean to Stirling in Western Australia um, um, in an initiative that saw both that work done nationally, as well as crews swapped out in Australia. And that was ended because of industrial concerns of the kind that I just alluded to in the discussion of munitions, where the United States didn't want to outsource those jobs to Australian industry rather than US industry. So you can see the shadow of this sort of pushback um, uh, against an allied empowerment agenda on both of those issues. It's likely that we will see an expansion of the rotational presence of US Marines in Darwin. This is important, not just for the Alliance working together, but also increasingly the way that those posture initiatives paved the way for Australia to work with the US and other third parties in the region like Indonesia, Singapore, and so forth. It has a strategic policy upside in every respect, but it will require substantial effort on both sides to look not just at the basing and placing of US forces, but that enabling industrial base that is critical to the sustainment of any of those options. And I'll leave it there, Simon.
0: Thank you, Ash. Um, Stephen Kirchner.
2: I think we've had a
3: fairly good preview of where the Osmin communique, at least, is going to land on geoeconomic issues uh, through the bilaterals Australia has already had in the run up to Osmin uh, through France, with France, Singapore, uh, India, uh, New Zealand, and Korea. Uh, all of those communiques called out economic coercion as an issue. And I would expect language at least as strong uh, from the Osman communique. Uh, and that language will obviously carry a lot more weight coming uh, from the United States. I think this represents a concerted campaign on the part of the Australian government to multilateralize the issue of economic coercion. There's a safety in numbers aspect to this where Canberra is keen to show to Beijing that we're not isolated on this issue. But I think what the Australian government is also trying to do is implicitly raise the threat of a collective uh, response uh, of some kind, uh, especially if that coercion continues uh, or escalates. Having said that, the US and its allies seem to be a long way from formulating, much less implementing a framework for any kind of collective response. Uh, Although I know the EU is fairly well advanced in developing its own uh, counter coercion uh, framework. In terms of substantive initiatives, though, I'm pessimistic that we will see much in the geoeconomic domain coming out of OSMIN for a number of reasons. Uh, One is that the OSMIN agenda is already pretty packed with defence related issues. And while there's some overlap with geoeconomics in terms of uh, defence industry, for example, uh, I'd expect non-economic issues to take up a lot of OSMIN's bandwidth. Secondly, there is the issue of whether OSMIN in its present configuration is the right forum to prosecute that agenda, uh, at least not without an expansion of that forum to include the economic principles uh, from both sides. And indeed, without further institutionalising Osmin in some way uh, to give it more organisational capacity. Uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison recently called for what would effectively be an economic Osmin uh, that would tackle issues such as WTO reform uh, as well as economic coercion. And my interpretation of that call is that the Australian government sees the economic agenda as potentially one that's too big for the existing OSMIN forum, and also that it's probably not as making making as much progress on those issues uh, as it would like through that forum. The idea of an economic OSMIN I think was given greater weight by Treasurer Frydenberg's address to the ANU uh, Crawford Leadership Forum uh, recently, which I think demonstrated that issues of international security are looming very large for the Uh, treasury portfolio, uh, as well as the uh, more traditional security related portfolios. The danger in pursuing these issues through another forum, of course, is that it really just kicks the can down the road, uh, or even over the road, um, but without addressing or solving the underlying issues that have impeded progress uh, through OSMIN. Third reason why I'm downbeat on what we might see out of Osmin is constraints on the US side. Uh, the Biden administration at this time still has no meaningful trade policy to speak of. Uh, everything is still under review, nor does it have a well-developed strategy for dealing with China in the Pacific or any other context. So there really isn't much of a strategy on the US side that initiatives coming out of Osmin could potentially uh, tie into. Um, that would give uh, substance to the sentiments that we might uh, expect to see out of the uh, Osman communique. There are also potential points of tension between the Australian and US governments uh, on a number of issues. So for example, on issues of supply chain security, uh, defence industry cooperation and critical minerals. All of these areas potentially cut across domestic US policy interests in particular, domestic industry and employment policy. And I think this is gonna be a big constraint as Ash alluded to on the US appetite for substantive cooperation in a lot of these areas of the type that the Australian government might want to see. Uh, In the area of trade policy, there is obviously tension with the US phase one trade deal with China that has almost certainly contributed to trade diversion uh, away from Australia. Uh, But remains US policy, and my sense is that the administration is just going to let that deal uh, run its course. So overall, I think the Australian government will get the language it wants to see from the United States, uh, but for a little of the substantive measures that it might want to see from the administration.
0: Thanks so much, Stephen. Um, And and Thank you for running to time. Uh, (laughs) Much appreciated, said the moderator. Um, um, uh, Jen, the floor is yours. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Simon. From my perspective, I think technological disruption is one of the issues that's central to Indo-Pacific security dynamics we are seeing play out and also a key part of the backdrop for this Osmin. Advances in areas like artificial intelligence, quantum information science and the Internet of Things are creating vast opportunities for prosperity, social connectivity and well-being. But we've also seen those same technologies support the development of sophisticated military capabilities and create new vectors for cyber attacks, espionage and disinformation. And the result has been a redistribution of economic and military clout in our region which has been evident in the effects of China's rise as a technology power. So I think for the United States, Australia and also like-minded partners, these dynamics have prompted new concerns about the reliability, security and diversity of critical technologies We've seen issues like supply chain security being brought to the fore of national policy conversations. And at times, free market principles have had to make way for industry policy and regulatory interventions on issues like 5G security to support national resilience. And nowhere has this been more evident than in the United States, where strategic competition with China has really crystallised the sense of urgency with which the Biden administration is working to protect its critical technologies interests. We've seen largely bipartisan support for major legislative and funding initiatives to both protect and harness the opportunities of technologies over the long term, um, but also a series of more restrictive measures that are intended to de-risk technology cooperation with China. The important point here, though, is that the US actions alone are not going to maintain the US's long-held dominant technology position uh, or ensure that technology develops in a way that aligns with liberal democratic values. That's going to be sustained by partnerships and partnerships that involve government, industry, as well as multilateral institutions. And this is where the alliance comes in and OSMIN as one of those essential partnerships to advance the US and Australia's interests in critical technology. Building on an already long-standing Relationship between Australia and the US in innovation, science and research. Australia and the US can together play a particularly strong role in supporting an open and competitive um, innovation ecosystem and one that's underpinned by strong global governance. There's already been a range of areas of cooperation that we've seen occur to support this, including best practice approaches to issues like 5G telecommunications security, Uh, responses to malicious behaviour in cyberspace, supply chain diversification in particular areas like critical minerals, and also growing space cooperation, particularly since the establishment of the Australian Space Agency in 2018. But I think what's clear is that the rapidly changing geopolitical environment around technology is driving sort of even stronger strategic imperatives to grow cooperation uh, on technology issues. And this OSMIN, there are a range of areas where that cooperation can be expanded. One is around continuing to deepen space industry cooperation through successful negotiations on a technology safeguards agreement that would allow closer uh, US space industry cooperation in Australia. There's also scope for more funding around some of those critical research areas like quantum information science and how that um, area of research can actually be Fast tracked into both commercial and military applications to support economic and military advantage. Both countries have also done a lot of work around protecting sensitive research. And so, again, there are opportunities to share best practice about due diligence in the research sector. But I think where the Alliance can um, work most strongly on these issues is actually in groupings with other partners to help strengthen um, practical action and turn a lot of the positive rhetoric we've seen uh, in forums like the Quad, the G7, ASEAN, and the UN into more of a practical agenda that can make a difference. And that includes in areas like sharing know-how and expertise on issues like digital resilience, Uh, more closely coordinating on technology standards, uh, alignment in multilateral fora like the UN to ensure that technology is being developed and used in a way that aligns with liberal values like human rights. Um, But also Australia and the US have substantial experience in major policy reforms around foreign investment and critical infrastructure regulation, uh, which they can bring to bear in some of those groupings. So I think the final point is that the technological disruption that we're seeing today, you know, this isn't sort of in the moment now. This is going to have impacts over many years and decades to come with implications for the alliance. And I think this first OSMIN under the Biden administration really presents a key opportunity to embed even deeper um, cooperation to maximise the benefits and minimise the risks of some of these technologies longer term. Thanks, Simon. Back to you.
0: Thanks, everybody, uh, and, and thanks, Jen. Um, look, I, I thought we'd do a quick whip round um, of, of some questions. And again, just to keep things simple, I'll, I'll proceed in the order of speakers. So first is Susanna. Um, look, one thing that all four of you uh, spoke to um, was this idea, and it's in a lot of our research here at the Centre, um, that the bilateral relationship, the Australia-US bilateral, ANZUS, the alliance, um, its significance is as much these days about how it's part of a regional ensemble of, of alliances and partnerships, this sort of regionalization of ANZUS that, yeah, there are some friction points in the bilateral, but the key thing is how it's contributing to this sort of broader regional goal, resilience, security, uh, stability uh, in the Indo-Pacific. From that context, Susanna... I'm wondering if you could talk about the significance of the fact that ministers Dutton and Payne are doing quite the trip on their way to D.C. that goes through um, a a lot of uh, Indo-Pacific capitals on their way uh, to Washington, what that means both substantively uh, for the meetings in D.C., the alliance in turn and those broader strategic goals, but also the symbolism of it.
1: Oh, thanks, Simon. Well, I think, um, you know, one way I'd respond to that would be to echo something that Ash said, which is this idea that we're already in a in a kind of plan B mode and we're very much um, seeing Australia looking um, both to the alliance, to the US, to play a stronger role in the Indo-Pacific, but also that we, in turn, um, up our game as part of our alliance contribution um, so we've seen that um, going back to, for example, last year's um, announcements that Australia made to increase its aid investments in Southeast Asia um, and then this kind of regional outreach, some of which had pretty significant outcomes. For example, the outcomes on defence cooperation with India are quite substantive. Um, and I think that's very much that Australia is seeing that as part of a sort of networking arrangement, um, including, um, with respect to the, the Quad and, and so on. Um, and on the Quad, I guess, you know, it's really significant that our Prime Minister's first trip to Washington with this new administration will be... Uh for this upcoming Quad meeting later this month. And I think that really highlights very nicely the way that um, our bilateral alliance, but also those regional network arrangements like the Quad um, can be mutually reinforcing um, and um, really play to Australia's advantage. And I guess the stronger our relationships with all the other key players in the region are, the better positioned we will be to um, continue to develop those kinds kind of network
0: arrangements. Thanks. Um, Ash, um, Minister Dutton and Defence here in Australia, um, there's been quite a lot of releases and announcements about about some of the initiatives underway. Um, I think going back to the Defence Strategic Update last year through to the present, that sort of stepped up in tempo around uh, onshoring some of that missile capability uh, you alluded to. What's left in terms of announceables there, if putting your finger uh, to the wind um, around what might come of it? You alluded to to perhaps some, some more might be coming there. You also talked about something that you've written a lot about um, for both Australian and American audiences about NTIB, that Australia's uh, role as part of the national technology industrial base in the US being sort of something that's really not, had a lot of sort of substantive progress uh, accompanying um, Australia's recognition as part of that uh, base. Uh, Is there is this finally the Osmin where something gets delivered about that indeed, as um, Stephen Kirchner was alluding to? Is this perhaps what the US it is in their power to do in terms of sort of countering geoeconomics by by opening the aperture, as we like to say on 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 those NTIB issues?
2: Um, it's a great question. I, I think the answer is you know yes and yes and no. Um, on the one hand, we have seen at Osmin's recently and I think we will see at uh, this Osmin incremental progress towards deepening um, at a project level at least, um, US Australia, um um you know defense industrial cooperation if not integration on certain issues um we obviously saw it with rare earths uh, a couple of years ago um we're we're now um wanting to see similar kinds of progress with munitions as as i mentioned and i think there will be something there i mean it's worth noting for the audience of course Um, that this is not beginning from a blank slate Uh, the US and Australia as as Jen uh, mentioned um, cooperate on a range of fronts already and co-production and co-development of systems is one way it's a time-consuming way but it's one way that both countries can work together from the ground up and circumvent and or at least manage aspects of the legislative controls that us places on its technology in third countries going forward we're seeing that even right now in hypersonics with the sci-fi agreement co-production of a hypersonic missile which is extremely important stuff so i wouldn't i don't want to suggest that there is no progress i think the point to be made here is that the ntib which was set up and in many ways came out of the mccain's um uh, office and chairmanship of um uh, of uh, the senate armed services committee it is very, very ambitious. It recognises, as Jen says, that the United States cannot go it alone when it comes to the technological um, underpinnings of its military power. In the same way as Susanna was just making the point with regards to policy initiatives, the United States cannot go it alone anymore. And I note Paul Madison's question in the Q and A as well there needs to certainly be um, more give on both sides but most especially in the united states in order to find ways of operating together that empower allies that provide a larger role for them whether that's in terms of um, industry um, and um, and access to u.s markets whether that's in terms of the on selling of technologies that have been co-developed to make australian industry viable or whether that's Uh, you know, in a war planning context, in terms of bringing the two countries together at a planning level and in an operational sense, those things, I think, all come together, um, uh, you know, in the term, we need to move beyond a superpower mindset in the way the United States does business with its allies and partners and start to recognise that this is very much now a collaborative endeavour. The domestic political... Um, industrial economic interests in the United States that have always been in place, and which I'm not making any moral point on, are absolutely the sorts of things the US should be protecting, um, don't make sense when they encounter a great power rising like China and the need for really significant collaboration with trusted allies and partners to meet a common um, uh, challenge. And so I think, you know, we will see some progress. I worry that incremental progress on a project level Osmin after Osmin after Osmin is not a very effective way at getting after this bigger challenge.
0: Um, that's a great point. And, and thank you for drawing attention to Paul Madison's question um, um, that gets uh, to that. We'll see if we can loop loop back to that because I think it's a, it's a really important question. Um, Stephen, um, and again, just picking up something you spoke to that I think again is implicit and occasionally explicit in everybody's comments, is to remark. I think quite helpfully, Stephen, that it is still the first year of the Biden administration. There aren't a lot of policy settings in place. I might come back to, to Ash and Susanna briefly to chime in on this. But, but Stephen, um, um, there's no there's no trade policy. Two two questions for you. First of all, it's, it's an audience question, Stephen. Could you say a little bit more about the? Is there evidence for trade diversion at the moment that Australia is a net loser from, um, from uh, what's going on, um, on the one hand, geoeconomic coercion from China, but um, U.S. either with its own trade arrangements with China or just the way that markets work, um, that Australia is a, net, is a net loser to the U.S. perhaps at the moment? Is there evidence for that?
3: You never get knocked down evidence for uh, trade diversion, but there's certainly been a significant loss of market share for Australia in a number of commodities uh, and an increase in the US market share. Um, and so while you can't uh, say for certain whether uh, trade diversion uh, is taking place, uh, certainly there's been a, a change in market share, which would be consistent with that. Um, And I think this is to China's advantage because uh, China, of course, is keen to maintain at least a superficial appearance of adherence to world trade rules. And trade diversion would potentially be an actionable um, thing from an Australian perspective. Uh, So it's actually helpful to China if they can maintain plausible deniability in relation to uh, any trade diversion that might be taking place. Um, I I think it would be in the interests of both the United States uh, and Australia for uh, the US to uh, remove the tariffs that it placed uh, on on Chinese imports um, and to move away from the sort of managed trade arrangements that we saw with the, the phase one trade deal under the Trump administration. But As we saw with Trump, it took Trump about a year to gear up in relation to what he wanted to do on trade. We didn't really see any tariffs coming out of his administration until 2018. Uh, I think it will take probably a year for the Biden administration to gear up uh, on trade. Um, But in the interim, that leaves a lot of uncertainty as to where the administration will land and what risks that might pose uh, for our trade relationships. Um,
0: That that gets to a, a second point and, and again, um, I, I do want to get a, a, a domain specific question to Jen, but but um, but just the ability of an institutional arrangement like OSMIN to deal with sort of a what is a very full agenda. Um, a little bit of history here. Remember OSMIN really is an opportunistic response by Australia when New Zealand um, um, suspends it's, it's the third leg of ANZUS sort of goes into the deep freeze um, uh, back in the eighties. Um, th- that's really the start of the of, of the ANZUS council became um, um, something different um, after, after that. Um, I'm wondering, perhaps not in response to this question, but we'll just we'll just perhaps hold it for now. I, I do wanna ask Jen a question about, for those of you who've worked in government uh, or work in government, present tense, um, how much else is going on over the course of the work year versus what comes together in the two plus two format? And is there actually, is there more capacity there um, than we're seeing working groups and whatnot, perhaps? Um, trade's a really interesting case, Stephen. Um, um, it, it, where does that sit? How do you meaningfully push trade issues now out, you know, DFAT has a T in it, um, but in the US system, the Secretary of State, you know, it's often, you've got USTR, you've got, you've got commerce, um, you've got treasury, you've got other parts of the US government handling. Um, uh, and then you get into industry specific stuff, it might be energy, uh, bag, you know, you've got those other parts of the government. Um, real quickly, Stephen, you on sort of the institutional constraints there that accompany um, uh, Osmin and, and when it's trying, to, when there's a big government to government agenda.
3: Yeah, I certainly think there's a big issue within the US government itself in relation to a lack of coordination between the US trade representative on the one hand uh, and other arms of US international economic policy uh, and domestic policy. Uh, I mean, this is something people in US government will tell you themselves that they get frustrated by USTR basically going off on their own and doing their own thing. So I think there is an issue of policy coordination within the US government. I think there's also an issue of coordination with domestic policy. I don't think these things are, are terribly well integrated, partly because of the enormous ambition of what the Biden administration is trying to do. I mean, They're literally trying to spend trillions of dollars pushing that money out the door is an administratively burdensome uh, undertaking. And so I think there are just huge bandwidth constraints within the US government. Uh, And in terms of OSMIN, I think you alluded to the the issue there, which is that OSMIN was never really set up to handle uh, a broad range of of economic issues. Uh, It's always had a relatively narrow security focus, reflecting the fact that the ANZUS Treaty is a security treaty. There's almost no reference to economic or trade issues uh, in that document. So this is one of the the challenges that policymakers on both sides face, I think, which is the need to integrate international and domestic economic policy with uh, international security policy in a way that they have not been used to doing before.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um, um, Jen, um, I I do wanna arc back to some of these bigger uh, themes, but um, again, speaking of issues that haven't been on the Alliance agenda, Extant, but are certainly there now. Um, critical technology um, is one of them. I guess it's a it's it's such a broad domain. Um, there are so many things that we might plausibly describe as as critical slash strategic uh, technologies. Um, everything from five G, quantum. You listed um, um, a, a ton of them. I'm guessing from where you sit, as 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 much as you can um, talk about today. Um, What's next cab off the rank as reminded us um, that um, we had that progress in the alliance context on on rare earths um, aka critical uh, materials or a subset of that which we call uh, critical materials um, You mentioned space in your comments as well I'm wondering it just give you an opportunity to perhaps signpost um, where you think there might be opportunity for something concrete, deliverable in the near term that we might see come out of a a communique or some announcements later this week from Washington.
4: Thank you, Simon. Yeah, I I think I've already mentioned a couple of the what I would consider to be the higher priority areas for near term cooperation, like 5G security, and um, we've touched on space as well. I think looking a bit um, further into the future, quantum information science, which I mentioned in passing, is one of those areas where I think uh, deeper cooperation would be beneficial in both a commercial and military sense to both parties. The reason for that is that the science is still very much in the early stages and we don't yet have a good sense of all the potential applications that we're likely to see, um, both across the economy and in a military context that could be quite disruptive um, to the types of capabilities that we currently uh, have in force today so I think there's a lot of work to understand how might we as sort of allied forces leverage the benefits of quantum science for technologies in communications or in logistics optimization but also how might um, potential adversaries use those technologies to disrupt, Um, some of the traditional advantages that we might have had. So I think Um, Although that area is very much um, on the alliance agenda, it's an issue that was talked about in one of the science and technology meetings held between Australia and the US last year. It's still very much a developing area of science and I think additional investment in terms of research funding but also technical cooperation on the potential applications and the disruptive effect that could have on military capability in particular. I think that's something where uh, there's a lot of scope to do more.
0: And, and could well be one of those things where the trusted partner nature of the bilateral perhaps assumes a little more significant operationally um, than some of these other things where, yes, the bilateral elements of its key, but only because it's embedded in that ensemble idea of regional alliances and partnerships. But when you get to things of enormous sort of sensitivity like that, that's where the sort of all the history... Um, on 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 being a trusted partner, perhaps comes into its own. Um, 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 for for Susanna and 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 Jen um, and Ash, I want to get you on this one as well. I, I I pinged Stephen a little bit on it, and time is starting to get a little bit tight for us. So um, um, the idea that. What can Osmond plausibly do by the time you're bringing the two, the two plus two, the principles together? Is it more a consummation and they're working through an agenda of things that have been agreed to by working groups over the course of the work year? Or is real business actually being transacted? There are real things for the principles to work out face to face in real time. Um, But the real work, you know, can you sort of as much as you're comfortable doing so? Pull the curtain back a little bit, and how much? Jen just alert, alluded to a science and technology um, meeting between the two. You know, we know certainly in the Intel space, there's there's got to be almost hour by hour, day to day, week to week, uh, cooperation going on. But when you've got an, an, an alliance agenda is full of this, what's really happening in that? Literally, what is it at most eight to maybe twelve hours that the principals might be together with some dinners and some public facing stuff than the closed door stuff what what how does this stuff really get managed and and the business of government the government um agreements um get sorted um perhaps um jen since since you're on camera at least as i look i'm gonna i'll put you on the spot uh, on that one if, if, if you could
4: yeah thank you simon i might just make some sort of general sure. remarks um sure. uh and i'll leave it to maybe to susanna and others to elaborate i mean i think it's fair to say that alliance cooperation is deep, Um, it occurs across all portfolios in government, Um, the regularity of conversations between Australian government officials and US officials, you know, that is occurring all of the time. And I guess in the lead up to any Major meeting of principals, there's a lot of work that goes on in the background to determine what those shared areas of interest are, what the key issues are that are worth sort of discussing face to face, particularly some of those trickier, more challenging issues. But I think where you see, you know, things that are going to be announced, clearly there's a lot of work done in the lead up to, sorry, just got some feedback, uh, to to negotiate and and settle on those outcomes. But clearly the value of the face-to-face meeting, there's still, you know, real opportunities to talk about um, key issues and sort of and, and push the agenda further than than some of maybe that early work um, that takes place. But I'll let Susanna and, and others add to kind of yeah. what might happen on the day.
0: Fascinated to hear from um, from both Susanna and Ashan about sixty seconds each. I'm afraid. Thanks.
1: Just very briefly, I think the real advantage of a regular annual meeting like Osmin is that it focuses attention on Australia. I think you know Australia is one of you know many global allies and partners of the United States, Um, you know, where perhaps a middle power, some people don't like that term, but um, the opportunity to actually um, harness the time and the attention of principles is crucial. But of course, I think much of the discussion today has reflected the fact, I think the sentiment of your question, Simon, which is that many of these issues, if you're talking about defence industrial base, or if you're talking about the need for a US economic strategy in the Indo-Pacific, you know, that lies well outside the remit of a forum like like osmin because it involves the legislature it involves other parts of the executive branch and so we're not going to be able to get everything that we want out of one meeting of course
0: now well said and 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 if i may i think that speaks to the role that institutions like ours have in in keeping the conversation going um, away from government uh, um, um, over the course of of the year uh, ash 60 seconds from you um, on, on that. Yeah, look,
2: briefly, um, and and it, from where Susanna um, uh, led off, uh, I think that this is one of the problems of a very under-institutionalised alliance like the US-Australia alliance. I mean, it's often said that the US and Australia don't need formal institutionalisation because at every level there are relationships and a minister can pick up the phone and speak to his or her counterpart any time of day. That may well be true. Um, but the agenda is 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 heaving. It's full. There is a much greater need for coordination now than there perhaps was when ANZUS and when the alliance was established. And so, this need to think about the architecture of the alliance and to optimise it for contemporary and future challenges, I think, is an urgent question.
0: Well said, Ash. And and that that dovetails very nicely with Paul Madison's excellent question about. Look, as we increasingly inside both capitals talk about whole of government challenges, particularly in the US, where it's thinking of strategic competition with China, um, as, a, as, a, as we said earlier, as a systems level challenge. Um, um, if you think about trying to drive coherence in your own government and then trying to drive coherence across, the, across a network of allies and partnerships. Um, yes, uh, bottom line, uh, we temper our expectations about what might come from an annual two plus two. And uh, as and is often the case, um, the hard yards is, is done by, I think, colleagues of, um, of Jen's and formerly of, of Susanna's, um, but, but people to whom um, we're thinking of this week and, and many other parts of the year as well, and are in regular dialogue ourselves here at, at the US Study Centre, a big big part of our charge and, and our mission. Um, with um, That brings us to the top of the hour. Um, look, as befits a very full Alliance agenda, there was an awful lot to get through in an hour. And um, and we, we could have probably gone a little bit longer. We're gonna have um, quite a lot of um, op-eds and, and some media releases during the week. There are of course, um, We've uh, that work I alluded to over, the, over which is our core business here at the US Study Center reports on geoeconomics, um, trust and diversify a report that we commissioned from external authors went up on our website a, about a week or two ago. Stephen Kirshner's own view on the geoeconomic agenda in an alliance context that'll be coming out uh later this month after Osmin and, and aligned with perhaps some readouts or unreadouts on that matter from um from Osmin and of course Ash and his team. Um, um, An update on um, a very influential report um, um, uh, that he he and his team released in 2019 on averting crisis, but again, an assessment of of US policy with respect to the Indo-Pacific, the matching of policy reality to sort of stated strategic aspirations, implications for Australia, um, um, that that report went up on on, um, our website. I believe it was a week or two ago as well. So there's been p- plenty of content um, ahead of Osmin uh, uh, on these matters uh, from the US Study Center. Last word from me is to, again, just briefly thank everybody, uh, Susanna, Stephen, Ash, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time, and to, and to also thank um, uh, two financial supporters of, of, in particular, of Ashley's part of the center, and that's Northrop Grumman and Tallis, whose generous financial support to a, what is at the end of the day, a small think tank space in Australia, um, a little goes a long way uh, in, in that context. And we're enormously indebted um, to both what Northrop and, and TALIS are able to do to allow us to bring people onto the payroll, frankly, and, and build that, 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 that body of work that helps provide a out, away from government a take on these issues over the course of the year.